Welcome to The Dirt. I am your host, Brian Powell. Coming up on the show today, we have an interview with Sherry White-Williamson. She has been an influential champion of environmental justice policy and principles for many, many years, going back to her time at the Environmental Protection Agency, where she managed the interagency working group on environmental justice. Ms. White-Williamson has returned to her birthplace in Sampson County, North Carolina, and works with communities impacted by storms, climate change, agricultural pollution, landfills, you name it. She spoke recently at a Duke University conference on hurricane recovery and resilience, and I caught up with her down east to talk about her work and a whole lot of other things. So stay tuned for that. First, we have in studio with us Upper Noose Riverkeeper Matthew Starr. Am I pronouncing that correctly? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Matthew Starr, welcome to the dirt, sir. Hey, glad to be back. It's been a while. There's a lot happening with your work uh, that we need to talk about. But first, before we get into to the meat of the water stuff that you want to talk about, we have spoken uh, in the past several shows about things happening at the, the legislature. The 2019 legislative session uh, continues on. Most, and on. And, and on. on and, and on. I, I think at this at this point, mostly due to kind of a stalemate with regard to the budget, the unwillingness of, of legislative leaders to come up with a, a politically feasible budget for the state of North Carolina. But there have been a few environmental bills kind of lingering out there, and they're not going anywhere because session stays around. And there were they, they were dormant for a few weeks. Uh, now there's been some action on them recently. So I want to quickly catch up with that. What happened with the North Carolina Farm Act in August? This is a a bill that gets a lot of attention because it would legalize hemp production in North Carolina, but also contains provisions making certain records from industrial hog producers secret, Hmm. uh, for example, how they manage their their waste lagoons, et cetera. And and there's some other bad provisions related to the factory farm industry. What what happened there? Yeah, so uh, like you said, it was was dormant for a while. it just went through another committee, the last committee before it goes to the full House floor for a vote. So um, here we are again, just kind of playing wait and see. Um, and it's already passed the Senate, right? So yeah. So you know, yeah, and you know, I, I don't know if you, I I haven't I haven't heard. I'm not sure that he's spoken publicly. I could be wrong, uh, but the governor may or may not veto it if they ever get this to a floor yeah, vote. A, if it ever gets to the governor's desk, the the real sticking point won't be the provisions that we're most interested in. It will be whether or not um, some things get added to the hemp provision. So right. it's, it's a waiting game. It seems to be law enforcement is against the, this kind of legalization and the agricultural and hemp lobbies are, are for it. So yeah. it'll be interesting to watch that. Uh, we talked a lot on the program about Senate Bill 559. This bill would allow... Rate payer backed one one provision would allow rate payer backed bonds to be used to pay for storm related damages to the electric grid or other utility infrastructure, which is widely seen as actually a good provision. However, mm-hmm. the bill would also remake the way that your electric bill rates are set in the state of North Carolina. It would reduce oversight of Duke Energy essentially and allow the utility to have rates approved for several years at a time. It contains a provision that would allow it to overearn by $140 million without refunding ratepayers. So that is obviously a very bad thing. It's been 
probably the most controversial yep. and and most heavily lobbied bill. A rich monopoly gets richer in in the legislature. What's the what's the latest on that? That had some action this week. Yeah, so it looks like um, those bad provisions have turned been turned into a study bill, which is a win. However, there's been some um, hearsay from from some senators that they're maybe not interested in that. So we'll have to see what what happens there when it goes back to the Senate. Looks like it's headed for a for our conference committee. And this is a common thing that lawmakers at basically every level in North Carolina do, where they take a controversial provision in a bill and they convert it into a study, uh, yeah. which, you know, that is a way of defanging this particular thing. And, and that's a very good thing. So we'll see where that goes uh, from here. But I would expect the governor to possibly veto that as well if he does. I mean, this was hard enough to get to the point where we were when you start mixing in, you know, the political calculations with regards to, to overriding a veto. Yeah, this mean, is going to be messy. If, um, this, if the study provision doesn't stay, it's it's yet another handout to Duke Energy, who who needs no help. And Duke Energy is gearing up. Well, folks expect Duke Energy is gearing up to be asking for a rate increase in the coming months. So, you know, they they're very interested in getting this sorted out and taken care of. Let's turn to some big news also. There is a huge six-lane highway project uh, scheduled to be built in the process of being built across southern Wake County where Raleigh is located. The Department of Transportation was uh, caught up in some legal action that your organization, Sound Rivers, was a part of. What has, what's the latest on that? Yeah, so yesterday news dropped that we reached a settlement agreement. Um, it's a it's a pretty big deal. It's a D- huge deal. DOT is going to have to come. They're coming pretty hard to the paint. They're going to have to um, show well, tell, up. Tell, tell us a little bit about the 540 project. Just yeah. kind of summarize what it what it is, anyways, and and why why you were even you know taking yeah, them so to five, in the first place. So this would be the completion, kind of uh, finishing the loop that half of it's already been built. Um, 540 is out there, I'm sure. Many of these listeners drive on. And to complete the loop, they need to go through one of the most important sub-river basins, one of the most important watersheds, and one of the most important areas for the Noose River. And in doing so, going to have some very negative impacts, which is why we filed suit. Like what? Um, for instance, destroying miles of streams, filling in wetlands. Um, this part of the river basin is home to 13 rare aquatic or endangered species. I, in fact, two species were just in this area were just listed as uh, threatened and endangered this year, just just a month or two ago. So it's going to have some which very one, which ones were those? Uh, those were that was the uh, New River Water Dog and the Carolina Mad Tom. Both both very cool species. Um, and you and others uh, in the environmental movement have been fighting to get that listing for a long yeah, time. Yeah, for so, a couple years now. Yeah. yeah, and we've been working to try to make 540 better for, gosh, the better part of five, six years now. Um, so this was a long, long time coming. Of course, the road is still going to be built, but um, DOT has agreed to some pretty serious concessions, um, things that not only will affect this project, but will hopefully 
affect all future roadway projects in North Carolina. Well, that's good. What kinds of things do they have to do? Um, well, they're going to have to what's called mitigate. Um, they're going to have to pay to protect nearby streams to kind of offset some of the impacts that they will be having. They're going to have to put into place some some climate provisions. They're going to have to look at using low-impact development for um, roadways moving forward, which means they're going to have to be able to develop roads in a much more environmentally sensitive manner. They're going to have to model runoff. They're going to have to model pollutants. And so hopefully what we will have is a good product moving forward that communities and the DOT themselves and state government and local government can use and say, okay, well, based on your modeling and your expertise because of this settlement, this roadway is going to have, (coughs) excuse me, this roadway is going to have a negative impact on our waterways. And you need to do something to fix that. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've we've talked about on the show before when it comes to the, the emissions portions of this, that's huge. Vehicle emissions and carbon emissions from vehicles is it's overtaking every other source of emissions uh, in the state of North Carolina as other things are kind of trending the other direction. We're seeing more and more traffic, more and more commuting uh, as as these highway projects get put into place. And as you know, we've got the triangle area that is growing very rapidly, a lot of people moving into the area. So I think one of the things that I saw that they're going to be doing is uh, not a huge portion of this settlement, but the Department of Transportation, at least for this project, I don't know if it applies to others, will have to use uh, low emissions mm-hmm. construction vehicles, which is which is cool. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. Yeah. But uh, that's good. And then, you know, like you mentioned, I, th- I think the to me, the thing that, that stands out is just the pretty decent amount of money that they're going to have to spend to buy other land to, you know, to to help protect the, the water dog yeah. and those other uh, species that you talked about. So, you know. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, granted, the road's going to be built, but this is, if the road has to be built, this is the, this is a great um, solution to that. Is It's not only, like you've mentioned, they're going to have to step up to the plate and do some things to offset the impact from this roadway. But more importantly, they're going to have to put into place more environmentally protective measures going forward. And that's what's really important. Yeah, this is what a win looks like in North Carolina (laughs) for the environmental movement. Absolutely, you know, 100%. So uh, congratulations uh, on on the resolution of that. Lots of hard work from the team, Southern Environmental Law Center, Clean Air Carolina, Center for Biological Diversity. Lots of years and hard work went into this. Yeah, and congratulations to Kim Hunter, who was uh, one of the attorneys on this case, who we've had on the show as well, talking about this uh, this project and other transportation projects that are taking place. So let's move on now to something called Swim Guide. Yeah. Uh, that is something that Sound Rivers has been doing, I guess this is the first year that you've begun doing in it. In this area, yep. In this area. And uh, I mean, it's something being done uh, across the country, but you, you've taken up the mantle here. What is what is Swim Guide? Yeah, so uh, Swim Guide is actually a, a worldwide, um, lots of areas in, me. in the southeast. Thanks for correcting me. Lots of areas across the country. Um, and if you're interested, all you have to do is visit swim swimguide.org. But it's it's 
a collection of water samples taken by nonprofits like river keepers or local governments in which they sample and we sample public access areas that the public is recreating in, swimming in, boating in, playing in, fishing in, visiting. And we sample for E. coli. What's E. coli? Yeah. So E. coli is a form of bacteria. Uh, comes from, uh, to put it bluntly, poop from warm, warm-blooded animals, and it can have some very. We're gonna have to bleep that out, you know. <laughs> it comes from some um, different sources. Uh, it could be pet waste runoff. It could be human waste, and it has some very real health concerns. Um, is this is this the kind of thing that? Is it likely to be from people who are like from kids having we'll call them accidents in the, in the creeks <laughs> and you know dogs doing their business in in the creeks no, and streams no. or or is this you know are the facilities discharging I'm, wastewater into the waterway like what is the I source mean, of this stuff? So, when you so find maybe it? if there were like a, a hundred geese floating in the in the river and I took my sample after they'd been there for a couple of days then then sure but no this isn't from uh the accidental accident if you will gotcha um this is this is coming from you know for instance wake county has over a million residents and that's a lot of dogs and that's a lot of pet waste um and that's also a lot of people and then if you're in more rural areas it could be um caused by agricultural runoff from from animal agriculture but like i've said we we're sampling in this area. We're sampling six sites on Falls Lake, five on Noose River within Wake County, all the public access points, because people deserve to know, and they deserve to have confidence one way or the other, that if they go play in their in their favorite stretch of water or they're visiting or they just want to get out and relax, that they should know if it's polluted, if it's is, is, contaminated. Is it, is it polluted and contaminated? What yes. Have you been, what have you been fi- Okay. Yes. Um our sites at Falls Lake have generally been been fine. Um, however, we've had some pretty problematic areas on on the Noose River itself, in which we're finding quite high levels of E. coli. Oh wow! Um, are they places where people are usually boating? Is this yep. a swimming thing, a fishing fishing thing? All of the above. Okay, so one. I mean, I guess two questions. And one should uh, we we're still in quote unquote swimming season. Yep. Um, for for the remainder and in North of North Carolina, that may be until November. Right. <laughs> and yeah. So for the rest of of this kind of season, looking at you know what you're planning your activities for for next year and beyond, or just things to know in general, should people just be avoiding doing these kinds of things? Are there? No, I, w- I wouldn't say avoid. I, I know before you go. Right. Knowledge is power. Um, has anyone of, has anyone actually gotten sick that you know of from exposure of. in these places? No, but you know, I, I don't think we just know that that information well enough. You know, you could get sick and have some gastrointestinal problems, some stomach issues. Um, what 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 are the what can we do? What are this? You know, how do we turn it off? Is there yeah, a way? So that's or is like it kind just, of the 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 2a part of this the program that we're doing first is letting people know second is correcting the issue 
excuse me. So, for instance, at Buffalo Road, where we've had high levels of E. coli, regardless of the amount of rain, um, I say that because if it rains anywhere between 24 to 35 hours before we sample, we will get high results based on stormwater runoff. However, when we're sampling and it hasn't rained and we're still getting high results like we see at Buffalo Road, canoe launch, um, that means there's a problem somewhere. Now, even if we get it during the rain, obviously that still means the problem, but, um, you know, we're, we're sampling, we're going upstream and trying to find that source of contamination. Okay. Well, everybody can check out the um, Swim Guide. What was the website? Yeah. So if you're in this area, just visit soundrivers.org backslash swim guide. If you're anywhere else around, visit swimguide.org. And Upper News RK on Twitter, you can follow as well for information about that. Uh, We've only got a short time left. I wanted to talk very quickly about uh, Hurricane Florence and the we're getting into the meat of hurricane season this year. Uh, the one-year anniversary of the landfall of Florence is in the middle of September. What should, what to you, what are the top of mind concerns looking at hurricane season from an environmental perspective as we as we approach? Yeah. So first, NOAA just announced um, a week or two ago that, contrary to their previous prediction, that we probably will see a more active Atlantic hurricane season, and that means that. We, if we get a hurricane, we will see similar things that happen in, in Matthew, uh, as well as Hurricane Florence, where we have, still have wastewater treatment plants located in the floodplain. We still have industrial animal agriculture, industrial swine facilities in the 100-year floodplain, and we've seen a, a huge explosion in industrial poultry operations that are being built in the floodplain because we have no regulations that keep them out. And, in I've fact, in the two years between... Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Florence, some of these mega poultry operations were flooded um, that weren't there. So they're being built in the floodplain. Right. Yeah. And we saw over a million chickens uh, drowned in, in Hurricane Florence. So it's a it's a problem. Uh, we got to leave it there. You are listening to Upper Noose Riverkeeper Matthew Starr. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Welcome back to The Dirt on WNCU-FM. I'm your host, Brian Powell. This week, I sat down with a champion of the environmental justice movement, Sherry White-Williamson. Ms. White-Williamson served in the Office of Environmental Justice at the Environmental Protection Agency, where she managed the interagency working group on environmental justice. After retiring from the EPA in 2015, Ms. White-Williamson went on to Vermont Law School where she graduated with a JD and a master's in energy regulation and law. And while she was there, she received several awards and scholarships for her work in the environmental justice area. She co-chaired the school's first environmental justice conference called Bridging the Gap Between the Promise and the Reality of Environmental Justice. She served as president and founding member of the Environmental Justice Law Society and vice president for the Energy Law Society. She continues to use every opportunity to raise the importance of issues of low-income and minority communities. And since returning to North Carolina, she's been involved with several local events, including the 2019 Duke Environmental Justice Symposium and the North Carolina Truth and Poverty Tour, sponsored by the Poor People's Campaign. She currently resides in Sampson County and serves as a board member of the Rural Empowerment Association for Community Help Reach in Duplin County, North Carolina, whose goal is to educate and empower citizens to 
learn. I wanted to speak with her uh, about environmental justice issues, about her career, and about a whole lot more. We sat down on a hot afternoon near Sampson County, a stone's throw from where loud trucks owned by the Inviva Corporation are, are hauling timber away from landscapes once covered in forest land where factory hog production facilities spray the countryside with brown plumes of liquid waste in the same county as the state's largest landfill and notably where communities were deeply impacted by Hurricane Florence and its subsequent flooding and continue to struggle one year later. Ms. White-Williamson talked to me about Florence, about environmental justice, about growing up in the 60s in the segregated South and her experience seeing uh, events in the current political climate and a lot more. Here is part one of that conversation. So first off, I want to talk about Hurricane Florence, the recovery effort. You spoke about this a little bit at the Duke event uh, that I mentioned in the intro. How would you grade the state and federal government's response to Hurricane Florence? Um, I would probably give them um, a C to a D. Um, and some of the communities still, um, in fact, um, I know of one situation, for example, where someone has moved out of their home, but their home has not been rebuilt even today. It's not even started. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, help, um, a, lot of more, a lot more pre-planning that could be done um, to help these communities, particularly as it relates to rural communities, because they don't have the resources um, to be able to recover as quickly or as well. And the income levels in rural communities are much less than some of the more affluent areas. So there are multiple problems that need to be dealt with. So yeah, I was going to ask how, how, how are people doing, what you think particular vulnerabilities might be that persist as we're looking at the anniversary of Florence's landfall coming up and the potential for more big storms coming in the next few weeks? My concern is that there are many residents in this part of the state who still haven't recovered from the last two or three storms. And as a result of that, um, it, to have another storm come at this point only puts them in a much more precarious situation than they're already in. Um, in order to help them, I think there needs to be a lot more pre-planning um, and getting out into these communities to assess where they are at this point and to try as quickly as possible to um, obliterate some of the, the problems that are still existing, um, maybe even putting them into better housing. Um, housing is always a problem down here because there are a lot of, of trailers. Um, and because there are a lot of a lot of lowland down here, there's flooding, and a lot of people are building back in the same floodplains that created problems before because they have no place else to go. And so there needs to be more consideration given to how and when and why there should be a plan to perhaps relocate people out of these floodplain areas so that they don't continue storm after storm after storm to have the same problems and then creating a situation where it's harder and harder and harder to recover. Yeah, and I should note that at the at the event, the panel that you were on a, and other panels, a kind of consistent theme was, what about the renters? Um, we, you know, we talk a lot about the, the homeowners. 
You're absolutely right, because oftentimes the renters are much more vulnerable because the, the housing stock um, is not as plentiful, um, and they obviously are depending on someone else for the places where they live. And depending on where they live, um, the owner may or may not decide to repair the property um, for various reasons. Um, if they have to move, rents may go up, um, and their incomes may not support paying more rent. So again, they're in the same precarious situation. And unfortunately, most of the programs don't offer a, a, a very, very much for um, renters. If you're a homeowner, you can get relief, storm relief. But if you are a renter, there are very few programs that would be helpful to you. So at the event, you mentioned, I'm just going to paraphrase one of the things that you said that, that struck me as very important, which is that government agencies, the you know FEMAs of the world, they should be consulting and coordinating with community organizations ahead of storms, far ahead of storms, in order to kind of most effectively provide aid on the ground, uh, rather than waiting until a disaster has already struck and then coming in and saying, hey, we need y'all to come help distribute this aid or figure out where we're supposed to, to send it. And by the way, can you do all the legwork for free? You're absolutely right. Um, the, the most important part of preparation and assistance in storm recovery is that federal agencies have established relationships with local communities. Um, I had the opportunity to work in federal government, so I know how we often thought and there's a great deal of distrust sometimes just because of experiences people have had with governmental agencies, whereas if a governmental agency will make the intentional decision to come in and identify organizations within the community who already have trust with the community and let that organization or that person be the face for the work, um, I think that the work could be done in a much better way um, and that the people who really need the help would get the help because the people in the community would be on the front lines to make sure that they identify those folks and provide the services. So you've been in the federal government at the EPA, as we mentioned in the introduction. You were a leader in the environmental justice efforts both at EPA and at Vermont Law School. I'm wondering, one, where do you see uh, the environmental justice movement in the federal government, what's the trajectory? What, is it, what does it look like now? We've, we've, you're not there anymore. Uh, Mustafa Ali, who used to lead the uh, Office of Environmental Justice at EPA, is no longer there. Is there hope? I always try to be hopeful um, that even though the um, agencies may not be putting as much focus on environmental justice per se, there are still people within the agencies who are committed to the idea of environmental justice and are do doing some of the things that continue um, to need to be done. And hopefully at some point in time, there will be more focus on environmental justice because you can't really separate environmental justice from storm recovery. Um, because the most economically depressed folk 
are the ones who are most impacted by the storms. And so there's just no way to separate the two. How did you get into the environmental justice space in the first place? You were a zoology major in undergrad, right? Where does this come from? That's a long story. So short story is I um, ended up at uh, the Environmental Protection Agency at the, in the latter part of my career um, with the federal government. And there are opportunities when you're in the federal government to take details, which means you get an opportunity to, to go to an office to work. And I had an opportunity to um, detail over to the Office of Environmental Justice at a time when the office was trying to, to reinvigorate some of its efforts um, around environmental justice and then had the opportunity to work as the liaison with all of the federal agencies because the um, President, uh, President Clinton's executive order on environmental justice established an interagency working group on environmental justice which incorporated all of the federal agencies. And this effort was to bring all of those federal agencies back together to focus as a group collectively um, on the issue of environmental justice. And so we were able to get feds out into the country in various communities across the country to actually see on the ground these communities and to talk with residents of those communities. So it was it was a fantastic opportunity to be able to travel across the country like that. Yeah, tell me about some of the places that you were able to, to take people. We started in Anchorage, Alaska. Wow. Um, just at the time that they were really beginning to see um, the sea level rise and, and how it was affecting um, the coastline uh, of Alaska. Um, and so we, we had a, a half-day session um, at a conference that the Alaska Natives have every year um, and brought in federal folks and had panel discussions and talked with them about some of their needs. Um, we went to um, Corpus Christi, Texas. We went to Kentucky. We went to um, California. Um, we, we held a, approximately 20 meetings over a period of about a year. Um, we started with the first meeting at the rollout meeting was at the White House um, with some of the top um, secretaries in the federal government to, to roll out the efforts and to talk about what we were going to do and invited community in because the most important part of the effort was to engage community. Um, and so um, it was, um, we think, a pretty successful effort um, because the agencies drew up a memorandum of understanding um, and had developed a charter because when the original executive order from 1994 was, was signed, uh, some of the agencies that were in existence in 2010 were not in existence right. in 1994. Right. So that was an effort to bring those agencies um, together as well. Did you, did you bring people along that were unfamiliar with concepts of environmental justice or the realities of some of the communities that were, you were visiting? I think it was not so much that people weren't familiar with environmental justice. I think it was more the unfamiliarity with the communities and community conditions. Um, I think one of the um, key components of bringing the federal agencies together were those community visits when agency people who perhaps wouldn't normally have gotten out to see community 
had an opportunity to go out and hold a community meeting and hear from community. And we intentionally um, arranged tours in those communities so that federal agency representatives could see on the ground what was going on. How did you, as a representative of the federal government, um, build the trust necessary with each of these communities in order to make those experiences um, authentic and, and meaningful? One of the things we tried to do, um, as we've talked about earlier, was to find out who in the community that we should engage in the planning process. We never had a meeting that we didn't have planning meetings that we engaged the community so that we could hear from them what they felt like we needed to do, who needed to be a part of that process, and how we needed to do it so that we pretty much let the community guide um, the way that that community meeting was going to run and identified what they considered their, their key needs. So if we went to one community and they said, our need is housing and energy, then we made sure that we had someone from the Department of, of, of Housing and Urban Development and someone from the Department of Energy. Or if they said it was something else, we always made sure that we tried to identify what the community thought their needs were and get the people from those agencies to be in the room. And if it was something local, if we could work out having local representatives or state representatives, we tried to work through the process and get the folks in the room that they felt like they needed there. Do you live far now from where you grew up? No, I actually live in the house I grew up in. Okay. And tell me what it's like in the place that you call home. Well, um, it's a small rural town. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's any more any larger than it was when I grew up. Probably about ten thousand people. I haven't checked um, the census since I've been back. Um, my parents were both teachers, um, and I'm a child of the '60s. So it was um, it was a good time, but there were challenging times as well. I grew up obviously through segregation into integration um, during the time that I was home. Um, and some of us have begun to move back home and some of us have decided that my hometown is too small and they probably will, will never come back home. But I always knew when I left home there'd be a point in time when I'd move back, so I'm back at home now. You've been listening to our interview with Sherry White Williamson, a Sampson County attorney, community organizer, and longtime champion of environmental justice. Stay tuned for part two of that interview after a break. You are listening to The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Welcome back to The Dirt. I am your host, Brian Powell. You are listening to the second part of our conversation with Sherry White Williamson, a Sampson County attorney, community organizer, and longtime champion of environmental justice. Ms. White-Williamson also had a recent op-ed published in the Fayetteville Observer in which she expressed and described her reaction to a recent rally by the president in Greenville, North Carolina, in which uh, the crowd was cheering racist chants and uh, other kinds of vitriol. And she described some of her experiences and where she sees uh, the nation heading and, and the hope ahead for Eastern and rural North Carolina. Here's part two of that conversation. You mentioned that you're a child of the 60s and, and you 
wrote about some of those experiences in a recent um, opinion piece at the Fayetteville Observer, which, uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar, the President of the United States recently held a rally in Pitt County. Uh, It made international news because of the vicious and openly racist conduct of the speakers and the crowd there. You wrote a response to uh, a reaction to to that event and to the broader surge in uh, racist rhetoric and in rhetoric of hate, uh, white nationalist uh, thought that has become so more open perhaps in the last few years than uh, it was before. Can you can you tell just tell me a little bit about the experiences that you wrote about if you're comfortable sharing them and and what what this event meant for you and, and what you see looking forward? It's interesting that you'd bring that up because that op-ed piece didn't start out as an op-ed piece. It started out as being a letter to the editor. Um, and as it began to write, um, I began thinking about things growing up, um, which made me very concerned about what I'm seeing now. Um, And so I ended up talking about some of the experiences um, growing up in my hometown. Um, Our high school class, my senior year, was the first fully integrated class in my hometown. Um, And while we had some good experiences from our perspective, there were some challenges. Um, And so I didn't write the piece with um, any intention of being negative anyway, but I wanted to remind people who I grew up with, hopefully, that while we've come such a a long way from the 60s, the way that I see things going, that it appeared to me that it would be very easy to revert back to a time that I hope that none of us would ever want to live in again. In the piece, you you ask the question, when are people going to, to wake up? When are people going to stand up um, against hatred? You say enough is enough. I think a lot of people feel that way. What does standing up look like to you? Um, I guess the best example of standing up to me is something that happened when we did integrate schools um, during my time in high school we had one professor or teacher who decided to open up his home. And he called it Conversation Unlimited. And once a week, um, he'd allow any student who wished to do so to meet at his home for an hour and just kind of rap about anything that was on your mind. And so it was, it was a, a diverse group. And many of us have remained friends over the years. And I think the reason that we remain friends is because we were in a safe space where we could talk about our experiences and share and and respect the experiences of each other. And that's one of the things that I think has happened now is that we aren't having that kind of dialogue. People are so um, caught up in their little piece of the world that they can't see beyond that and see that while we may have differences, there are a lot of things that we have in common. And when we focus on the things that we have in common, regardless of who we are, then we are much better together 
than we are being separated. You also mentioned in the piece uh, the importance of Christian principles or, or faith to you to um, the way that we treat one another. And I'm just curious as to what what role faith plays in your life and in your advocacy and you know whether it plays a role or not in the way that you approach environmental work specifically with or the earth faith is very important to me um we all grew up in the church we didn't dare try to avoid going to church um and so those kinds of things stay with you whether you're in church every day or night i don't think that's the important thing the important thing to me um, is the golden rule that do unto others as you would have someone do unto you. Um, and in so doing, um, we treat each other fairly. Um, I've tried to use that approach with, with everyone I meet. I, I try to be as genuine as, and as transparent as I can be. I try not to judge anyone just because of the way they may look. Um, I've had many conversations with people who you might think didn't have anything to contribute, but just a short conversation lets you know pretty quickly that that person sitting there is very intelligent, perhaps you know a genius in terms of the types of experiences that they have had. So faith, um, and, and it concerns me that faith has been used so many times to separate um, people. Um, and, and that was, I don't believe, or my Bible doesn't tell me that that was what in, was intended, that God intended us to use words in the Bible to separate us, but rather using words in the Bible to bring us together, to forgive, um, to accept, to um, give to people as we can um, in whatever situation they may be in. And I think if we got back to that as community, as country, um, and, and not accept a lot of the things that we're hearing now, that this would be a much better place. And perhaps I think I'd feel a lot better about what I see moving forward rather than some of the fear that I have now of what could potentially happen moving forward. What has the response been like to after, since the op-ed has been published? I'm, I've been surprised. Um, it's all been positive. Um, I've had a couple of, of really good conversations with some old friends um, who have said, um, either they've said that was similar to my experience or they've said, I had no idea. And I'm glad that you did that because I want to continue having the conversation. And I think one of the things that I tried to um, relay in that piece was that we needed to be sitting down and having conversations together. And I think that's the first step in the next phase of anything that we can do. Well, that leads me to the last thing I want to talk about, which was organizing strategy. How, what does outreach look like? What does sitting down with people, how do you convince people to sit down with you in the first place? If you've got uh, a landfill coming to your community and you want to stop it, what's the first thing a person should be doing to rally other people around them? It's going to have to start with that first one-on-one -on -one conversation. And there may have to be many first one-on-one -on -one conversations to find that person who's willing to take that step. Because one of the things that um, 
I think we have to keep in mind as we work in communities, low-income communities and communities of color, is there's, that, there's a lot of distrust, first of all. But then there's also a fear that if I step out, am I gonna have to be worried about whether I have a job tomorrow, if I'm gonna be able to support my family, but what those broader implications are, am I gonna have a place to stay? So in working with those communities, I feel like you have to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations to try and identify who those folks are who might be able to stand up, but at the same time, assure them that that support is going to be there from you and other people as they are trying to bring attention to the problems that they may be facing in their communities. If you're already a part of that community and it's friends and neighbors that you're trying to convince um, or educate or, you know, organize, is, the, you know, is standing at the foot of the steps outside on a church on Sundays the best way to do it? Is trying to get people on Facebook the best way to do it? Like, is, what is, what's effective? I think there's no one effective way. Um, I think you have to figure out what community it is that you're trying to reach. It may be the minister of a church in one community. It may be the grandma who's been in the community for years in another community. So it, there's, there's no one strategy that fits all. And I think it's up to the people who want to try to work in a community. Or me, now that I'm back home trying to work in, in my community, is figuring out who is that person in the community now because I've been gone for a while, so in, in a way, I've got to reestablish my credibility within my community. So I always have to be cognizant of the fact that I may not be that bag of chips, as the expression goes, for some of the people in that community. And I've got to show them that I am sincere and that regardless of what happens, I'm gonna be there with them. We've, we've talked a lot on the show about the impacts of uh, factory um, farm production in Eastern North Carolina, in Duplin and Sampson counties here in particular. I'm wondering, and we talk a lot about the pork industry's influence, usually within the context of the legislature, mm -hmm. you know, the money that they're spending up there or the lawmakers who are representing those interests above the interests of impacted communities. But something that we talk about a little bit less, we talk about we talk about the local impact of, of the pollution and, and the health impacts of some of these operations, obviously, but something that we don't talk as much about are the ways in which the industry is influencing local communities in ways that stifle uh, organization efforts or education efforts or ways that maybe uh, th in this we have talked about intimidate people uh, from participating in uh, you know the democratic process or in, in organizing against you know, some of their operations are there, what, what what kinds of, of tactics have you seen from the pork industry at the local level and or do you see any resemblance to the way the pork industry is operating now with the way that big tobacco operated in North Carolina in the past? Uh, that's a interesting question. 
Um, and I'm not sure that I have an answer to that. Um, I think one of the things that um, local organizations often hear is that organizations who want to work within community want to put the pork industry out of business, and that is not the case at all. Um, what local folks around those areas are simply asking for is better technology so that, that they are safe or safer than they are now. You know, we aren't, don't want to see anybody lose a job. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be a person advocating for that. Um, but I guess to some extent, um, there may be some similarities between big tobacco and the pork industry. And I'm sort of going back in my mind because I actually worked on tobacco issues um, for the American Cancer Society um, oh, wow. when I was there. Um, and one of the things that we did um, is similar to what I've been saying all along. We actually worked directly with um, tobacco growers um, and we had that conversation. And while they were probably never gonna stop growing tobacco as long as tobacco provided them with the kind of income that they wanted, they had the recognition that there were health impacts that they were concerned about for themselves, but even more so for their children. And so we were able, as public health and tobacco farmers, to lobby in Congress um, to at least you know, get more attention to the health impacts. And I think that hopefully that same kind of synergy could happen with any big industry, recognizing that everybody wants to be able to live comfortably, but at the same time, we need to be aware of the communities that are being most impacted. And in most of these situations, the communities that are most impacted, again, are low-income communities and communities of color because they tend not to have either the money or the power um, to impact um, the decisions that are made at higher levels in government. All right. Well, I think I've taken up enough of your time. I appreciate you sitting down and talking with us. Well, thank you for having me today. You have been listening to our interview with Sherry White Williamson, a Samson County attorney, community organizer, and champion of environmental justice. We are officially out of time. This has been The Dirt with Brian Powell on WNCU 90.7 FM. The Dirt is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network. You can look for the show on Twitter at The Dirt FM and in digital podcast form on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Until next time, be good, y'all.